0: If you just don't want to think about it, then just grab one of the Easy Peasy First Foods sets. It has everything you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods with baby led weaning. That code is BLWMOM for 20% off Easy Peasy orders of $50 or more now through Sunday, May 12th at EasyPeasyFun.com. And happy Mother's Day to you.
1: When we allow them to do that, their eating is internally motivated. They're eating because they're hungry. They're eating because they enjoy it. They're eating because they're curious. They're eating because they see other people around them eating it.
0: Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the baby led weaning made easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding, leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby led weaning. Well, hey guys, and welcome back for this episode. I wanted to do a roundup of baby-led weaning expert advice from a few selected guests who were on the Baby-Led Weaning Made Easy podcast in 2021. So, for those of you who listen, you may know I release two episodes each week: a mini BLW training each Monday, and then a guest expert interview episodes on Thursdays. And so, with the bonus episodes from the year added in, we had about 25 feeding expert guest interviews in 2021, and. It's always hard to pick favorites, but I went through all of them and teased out 13 different pieces of advice from our experts that I thought would be particularly resonant for our audience. And our audience are primarily people like you, parents and caregivers of babies who are about to start solid foods or are currently making the transition to solid foods using baby led weaning. So before each clip, I'm going to give a smidge of context so you guys know who it is that's speaking and what they're talking about. And then I'll also share the episode number in case it's something that you want to go back and listen to that whole episode. You can always find the full show notes and listen to that episode or read the transcript of a particular episode number if you go to blwpodcast.com slash episode number. So for example, this is episode 192. All of the links from the episodes mentioned will be on the show notes page for this episode at blwpodcast.com slash 192. Before we dive in, I just wanted to say how very grateful I am For each and every one of you who listen to the podcast, having this platform to share evidence-based feeding info and bring you my mini BLW trainings and interview other feeding experts is certainly the joy of my professional life. So thank you because your downloads and ratings and reviews have kept us top rated in the parenting category all year long. The end of 2021 was such a surprise, totally off the charts for us with regards to reach and rankings. And it makes me so happy that you guys are finding this info and it's striking a chord. So thank you for telling your friends about the podcast. And I know so many of you, like me, are working parents. So a lot of you guys are listening to the podcast on your commute to and from work, or maybe you're a stay-at-home or work-at-home mom. You're taking in episodes when you're folding laundry or doing the dishes. So wherever you are when you're listening to this, I want you to know how grateful I am for you. And with no further ado, here's some of the best baby-led weaning advice from 2021. From the leading feeding experts. Okay, first up is none other than Jill Rapley, co author of the original baby led weaning book, the founding philosopher of the baby led weaning movement. None of the work that our team is doing here at the baby led weaning team would, of course, be possible without Jill Rapley's seminal work in the field. And so for that, we are eternally grateful to her and to her work. So Jill has been very gracious with her time here on the podcast. I was looking back, and in 2021, Jill Rapley was a guest on the podcast four separate times in four different episodes, the first of which was episode 100, where Jill shared a little bit about the history of baby-led weaning. So here's Jill Rapley explaining why she was inspired to coin the term baby-led weaning and how it originated.
2: It was about feeding being done by the baby, not to the baby, and that, I think, was quite a big shift it was in line with what we were learning about breastfeeding but it hadn't kind of permeated into the the later aspects of feeding of course what most people saw was simply a no spoons or no purees because that was what it looked like in practice but it's always been more than that it's about trust between parent and child i don't think there had been any recognition that we were often making eating so miserable for babies and then having to try and undo that quite a lot of the literature i looked at in the early days was around toddlers and older children, picky eating and food refusal and so on. And time and again, I came across this golden rule, which was give the control back to the child. That's the way forward. And I just thought, why ever did we take it away in the first place?
0: Amen. Why did we ever take control away from the child in the first place? Jill was also back on the podcast in episode 102, where she discussed the future of baby lead weaning. There was so much good stuff in the episode. I had to split it into two. So in episode 102, we were talking about Our collective efforts to reshape the infant feeding landscape such that our ultimate goals are that spoon feeding would be considered the exception moving forward, and a baby led approach will be the rule or the norm. We're not there yet, but we're getting close. And here's Jill Rapley again. And
2: depending on what study you read, they will tell you you have to introduce new food to a baby eight times or 15 times or whatever before he will accept it. I really struggle with that word accept where's the enjoyment in that it's still so much of the language in the research is around um, getting babies to comply with what the adults want and assuming that babies don't want to eat i mentioned before when we were talking in our previous interview about the idea that we have to make eating fun we have to just stop making it miserable (laughs) babies will eat they want to but we also have to understand that their motivation for starting with solid food is probably nothing to do with hunger. It's to do with exploring their world and testing things out with their mouth and with all of their senses. And they discover by chance that this stuff tastes good, fills their tummy, whatever. But that's not their initial motivation. And all the time we make it about food itself, and then I think we're missing part of the way that we can understand babies.
0: And I hope you guys caught that. She said, when babies are learning how to eat, the baby's motivation for starting solid foods has nothing to do with hunger. We have to stop being so preoccupied with how much our babies are eating. We need to sit back, relax, and give our babies ample time to learn how to eat. BLW does give your baby that much needed space. Up next is another favorite feeding expert of mine pediatric dietitian, Rosan Meyer. Rosan specializes in food allergies as well as growth. And measuring growth. And she was in episode 110, helping us understand why the recommendation that so many parents of smaller or prematurely born babies hear, which is that they need to start solid foods early in order to help their babies with what's called catch-up weight. That's actually a terrible recommendation. And here's Rosan Meyer, PhD, RD, talking about why we do not want to start solid foods early for smaller babies for catch-up growth.
3: Yeah, I see that now quite a lot. And um, it worries me if somebody says to catch up growth, you need to start solids. So there are a couple of things. You've already highlighted the oral motor skills. That goes without saying head control, all of that, which actually means that it can be dangerous. But I think there are two aspects from a nutritional perspective that worry me. The first one, if I just use numbers. So breast milk has got around 70 kilocalories, if you say for that rich hind milk. And your formulas, unless you took a, take an energy-dense formula, it's very similar. But when you start with complementary foods, you start with vegetables, fruit, you know, your porridges and those, they are inherently not very energy-dense, but babies' stomach capacity are low. So therefore, what you're doing is, even if you say, I'm just going to give a small amount, number one, you're giving a small amount for what benefit? For 10, 15 kilocalories and three to four teaspoons, if I could have had, you know, an ounce more in terms of formula or in terms of breast milk, so calorie protein-wise, I would get much more. So that's a wrong argument to say, okay, I'm going to use solids now for ketchup. The next argument. So let's say your pediatrician actually or forces you, I want to say says actually you need to start with the energy-dense foods in a non-allergic child that might be yoghurts, cheeses. you know, anything that has got. Fats, protein, and calories. Then, my second concern is that breast milk is the ideal source of nutrition. So, when we measure what you want to give, you say breast milk has got 6% of energy as protein. The evidence that we've got at the moment is if, if you force a child to give too high a protein too early on, it actually uh, starts a cascade of metabolic responses within the child that increases the risk of obesity. In later life, so although you might not see your child at that stage, you know, growing really fast, it actually sets a metabolic cascade off. So high protein diets, and I think per se, I want to just say, very, very high protein diets very early on, it's really not recommended for babies. Thank
0: you, Rosan, for reminding us that we don't need to perseverate on protein. Right? If you
3: guys are
0: feeling stressed about your baby's growth or growth chart issues, you've got to go to the show notes for Rosan's episode one ten because she linked this amazing training video that she did on how to accurately obtain infant height and weight. And it's going to blow your mind because almost certainly it's being done improperly in your pediatrician's office. But the problem is, as she discussed in that episode, is that there's lots of things going on in the pediatrician's office, and they're not necessarily willing to admit that obtaining height and weight is being done inaccurately. And I, as a feeding expert, don't want you to feel shamed or inadequate about your baby's growth because of inaccurate measurements that are driving inaccurate data on the baby's growth chart. So that video that Rosan did in the show notes page, it's at blwpodcast.com slash 1110. It's already been downloaded so many times. I'm so glad people are finding it and it's helping. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can help you get there and BetterHelp can help you. Visit BetterHelp.com slash weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash weaning and get 10% off your first month. Another one of our feeding experts who made a few appearances this year is a real life friend and colleagues of Rosan's. She's also a leading authority in pediatric food allergy research. And that's Karina Venter, Ph.D.R.D. And Karina was on the podcast in episode 124 talking about using an egg ladder for reintroducing egg in babies who have egg allergy. Now, this is a really important episode if you've been told that your baby has an egg allergy or maybe you have a diagnosis. A lot of you think your baby might have quote-unquote egg intolerance, which Karina covers in this episode and explains that that's not even really a real thing. But here's Karina Venter talking about egg ladders. She's also done a lot of work with milk ladders, so that's mentioned in this episode as well.
4: I was so excited when you asked me to come and talk about the egg ladder because I think I published the first ever ladder, which was the milk ladder. And it was because the doctors emailed me and kept asking me what comes before chocolate, candy, and what goes after a muffin. And so I thought, well, I better come up with some ladder structure of introducing milk. But today we're going to talk about the egg ladder. And so basically how we develop the ladders is we look at the particular protein. So in this case, the egg protein, we look at foods containing the egg protein and we then list them or grade them according to amount of egg protein present and time of heating and cooking. So at the bottom of the ladder, you would normally get a cookie, which is well baked. It's got a very small amount of egg protein in And then as you go up the ladder, you may end up with something like custard or ice cream, which has got a lot of egg in. It's heated at a very low temperature, which is about 60 degrees Celsius, which I think is about 120 Fahrenheit or perhaps 130 Fahrenheit for only a limited number of times. So that's really how it's structured. Smallest amount of egg to highest amount of egg, and then highest temperature and longest time of cooking up to lowest temperature to um, lowest amount of cooking.
0: Okay, and egg ladders for babies or children with egg intolerance or egg allergy?
4: So first of all, egg intolerance, you know, it's the definitions, um, again, that fascinates me. We don't actually see egg intolerance. We really talk about the non-IgE-mediated egg allergies, which some people may refer to as intolerances. But I do want to make sure to say that really, strictly speaking, it's an allergy because it's mediated by the immune system. And then we have the proper IgE-mediated or immediate type egg allergies. So in most cases, these ladders are safest to use in the non-IgE-mediated egg allergy or the egg intolerances. We in the US do not use the ladders for IgE-mediated egg allergies, but it is very successfully used in the United Kingdom. There's a number of studies coming out of Ireland soon where they use the egg ladders at home or in primary care in children with egg allergies. And it's also very successfully used in Canada.
0: One thing I absolutely love about this podcast is being able to bring on feeding experts from around the world. So Karina is based in Colorado now, but she literally serves on every major international pediatric food allergy guidelines committee. She's always sharing what practices are being employed in different countries and why you may or may not see some of these in the United States as much. She truly has her finger on the global pulse of pediatric food allergies. And we have a lot of food allergy content on the podcast in 2021. I was honored to have another leading pediatric food allergy expert join us, Dr. David Stukas. Dr. Stukas is on social at AllergyKidsDoc. He is a great wealth of info. He's got a great sense of humor. And he has that unique trait that I really wish more researchers and physicians also shared he takes complicated medical information and puts it into actionable steps that we can take with our babies in real life. In episode 125, Dr. Stukas and I were discussing why false positive results in food allergy testing are so common. And this was in response to some previous conversations around parents who we know are getting marketed to really heavily by supplement companies these days. And these supplement companies are preying on parents' fears about introducing allergenic foods. And the companies promote these expensive supplement stick packets and powders that you need to mix into milk when. We all know that babies can safely eat real food versions of the allergenic foods. We don't need expensive supplements. So here's me asking Dr. Stukas about what ends up being the resultant fear of food allergies that's now like inherent in parents today and what sometimes manifests in their desire to blanket test for every food allergy under the sun. I really appreciate your down-to-earth approach and recommending food first, because we are kind of moving into this arena in food allergy prevention, where I think there are a lot of brands out there trying to scare parents into thinking that babies can't eat food-based versions of these potentially allergenic foods. So the irony is not lost to me. Are you asking me if it's safe for my baby to be fed food? I am not joking you. Every single day I get messages, as I'm sure you do as well, from parents who ask that very question. Like they're the fear factor is so high with this when the absolute or overall risk is actually quite low, and not discounting how serious food allergies are, but for so many parents, they listen, cause this is all so scary. I'm just gonna get my baby tested for everything before I try any of these foods. Is that a good approach?
5: It's a terrible approach. Um, it's gonna cause more anxiety because you're gonna get you're gonna find false positives eventually. If you do enough of those tests on enough children, you're gonna find false positives. And it's really hard for a lot of parents to overcome seeing that positive result and understanding what, what that means, what that doesn't mean. So an elevated IgE test only indicates sensitization. It doesn't mean you're allergic. If you're eating a food but sensitized, you're tolerant. In fact, if somebody's eating a food and they're tested for that food and then they're told to stop eating that food because of an elevated IgE, that can actually create food allergy. And this just makes me so angry because there are well-intentioned physicians everywhere doing these tests on babies with eczema or other symptoms that aren't related to food allergy at all, they tell parents to take the food out of their diet. By the time I see them months later and we try to reintroduce it, they have an allergic reaction. They actually caused an allergic reaction in somebody who was tolerant but sensitized by telling them to take it out of their diet. That's a real problem. That's one example of why these tests are are problematic. There are now at-home versions of these, which is a terrible idea. Just, you know, sort of quote-unquote scan for 200 different food allergies or food sensitivities, which also is not actually a medical you know, test that is, is validated in the, in the evaluation of food sensitivity. That's IgG testing. But none of these are screening tests. So we shouldn't be using them in that manner at all. That was Dr. David Stukas in episode
0: 125, a great one to listen to if you're feeling pressure to get blanket food allergy testing, especially if your baby has never reacted or truly reacted to a food. He breaks that down in episode 125. We had some more food allergy advice coming to us in episode 129. This was an interview with Dr. Rebecca Hartman, MD, MPH. Dr. Hartman is a Harvard-affiliated dermatologist. She's also the mom of a baby who has multiple food allergies. So in this episode, we were talking about the relatively new research or emerging research that links eczema and food allergy risk. Here's Dr. Hartman talking about eczema and food allergy risk.
6: Yeah. So um, it's interesting when, before I had my son, I just always thought they were linked because it's genetic. Like people who are predisposed to eczema are predisposed to allergies. They call it the atopic march. They can get um, allergic rhinitis and they can get asthma. But as I I did more reading and learned with my own son, they actually, uh, people now think that atopic dermatitis or eczema in and of itself is a direct risk factor of food allergy because the skin barrier is abnormal. It's unhealthy in XMR atopic dermatitis. And this can allow allergens in the air or in contact with our skin to see the immune system in a way that they normally would not be able to do so. And there's some thought that seeing the allergens in your gut through eating promotes a healthy response to these allergens, whereas seeing them in your skin does not. And that's probably part of why the early introduction is helpful. We're We're showing these allergens through the gut, And the gut's responding and saying, okay, these are safe. These are not a problem. So unfortunately for for babies with eczema, they're at high risk to have the allergens be exposed through their skin and develop an unhealthy response to them. And that's probably why my son, before he had even tried peanut butter, um, had already had a reaction, but he may have gotten it some through the breast milk. There's some thoughts that actually the peanut protein in some women, in one study, about half the women did pass it in their breast milk and half did not.
0: I was actually a little hesitant to do that interview because eczema is so subjective, right? Like Literally every single baby has eczema, and I didn't want parents walking away mistakenly thinking that their baby has the rare case of severe eczema that we know is the one that increases the risk of peanut allergy. But if you're also slightly confused about eczema and food allergy risk, episode 129 with Dr. Hartman is a great one for you to get some clarity. All right, so 2021 was also the first year that we celebrated the first ever National Baby-Led Weaning Day because we also got it designated. July 1st will forever be known as National Baby-Led Weaning Day. It's also Canada Day, I know. Uh, We chose July 1st because that is six months into the calendar year. Basically, if your baby was born on January 1st, six full calendar months later would be July 1st, and we would likely be celebrating your baby's first time trying baby-led weaning. And we use this day to honor the work of Jill Rapley, again, the founding philosopher of the baby-led weaning movement. Jill came back on the podcast in episode 140 to talk about National Baby-Led Weaning Day. She's the perfect person to honor on this day because of the very important work she's done, highlighting the importance of waiting until six months to start solid foods. Here's Jill Rapley on why to wait. So now that we know
2: that they really don't need it before six months, and we know that at six months they're ready to reach and grab it, then we don't have to worry about the the need for food. We just have to offer, offer the opportunity to explore So for me, the reliable signs of readiness to engage with solid foods, whether or not that means eating them, are the ability to sit upright, steadily enough to be able to reach out without toppling over, but some babies still need a little bit of support around their hips, that's fine. Able to grab things using their whole hand, not the pincer grip, that comes later, but with their whole palm, and being interested in bringing things to their mouth, that's it. The old signs we were told about, which, as I mentioned, kind of relate to being four months old rather than, than being ready for anything in particular, are things like waking at night or watching parents eating. They're just things that babies do. They're not a sign of anything other than being a baby and probably being around about four months. Although, of course, we know that breastfeeding babies have probably not slept through the night at all. by then anyway, why would we expect them to? Then there's kind of always been issues around weight. If your baby's a certain weight, he's ready for solids, or if he's actually not heavy enough, he's ready. for Those are irrelevant. Again, the food babies need in the first six months is breast milk or formula. The other one that's always bugged me is the tongue thrust reflex. Sure, you have to look out for that if you're going to do something to a baby who might not be ready. But number one, you're not going to do it to him if it's baby-led weaning. He's going to do it himself. So he's not going to be confused about whether his tongue thrust is present or not. And second of all, the tongue trust has has always gone by six months, unless you have a baby who really is not developing typically. It's just not an issue. And I guess the last one that we're often told is that we need to demonstrate that babies are ready to swallow food before we give them food. And that, excuse me, how can you demonstrate they're ready to swallow it without giving it to them? So like, if you have to test for it, that's weird too. And as, as I think I've kind of made clear. It's the swallowing comes later. It's the exploring and the engaging that matters.
0: Yes, it does. Thank you, Jill. And if you need more Jill Rapley advice in your life, she was back on the podcast again in episode 142. That one was debunking the biggest BLW myths with Jill Rapley, PhD. There was so many good tidbits of advice. I couldn't pick one. So just go listen to that whole episode if you missed it the first time around. And speaking of fabulous advice, of course, I had my good friend and fellow BLW expert Dawn Winkleman on the podcast a few times in 2021. One of my favorites, and yours too, because the downloads were insane, was episode 149 with Dawn. She's also a feeding therapist and a speech language pathologist. She's the feeding expert for Easy Peasy, so she designs all of their feeding products. This particular episode, we weren't talking about gear, we were talking about pouches. And the episode 149 was called Pouches why your baby doesn't need to suck pureed food out of pouches with Miss Dawn SLP. So here's Dawn talking kind of high level about just a few of the drawbacks of using baby food pouches. Yes, eating
7: is the most enjoyable sensory experience a baby has the opportunity to experience in their lifetime. But if we give them a plastic pouch where they can't see the food, they can't smell the food, they can't touch the food, they can't hear the food, then we're essentially stripping away baby's sensory exposure at mealtime. And this can result in poor eating habits. It can result in food refusals. And it's really important for us to understand why that can happen. It's because they're eating directly out of a plastic container and really not falling in love with kale, like you were just giving that example earlier. Like they're not falling in love with kale. They're falling in love with this plastic pouch that they can swallow so easily because they're using a swallowing pattern that is an immature pattern. We want them to be able to have the sensory experience of touching that food and hearing how that food is moving around into their mouth, seeing the food, smelling the food. So then they're really building a relationship with that food, not a relationship with manufactured products. The biggest drawback for me is that they don't promote a healthy development of feeding and swallowing skills. So pouches encourage suckling, which is an immature swallowing pattern. We want babies to learn a mature swallowing pattern of chewing and swallowing, just like you and I do. When babies are consistently given pouches, they tend to have trouble progressing to finger foods and usually need to see me for feeding therapy. So we know that studies show that a late introduction of soft, appropriately sized strips of food is associated with picky eating and other feeding difficulties later in a baby's life. And this can happen when babies are given pouches so frequently. If it's an occasional, you know, pouch here or there, I just ask families to pour that into a bowl or offer it onto a baby-led spoon
0: We live co-teach our 100 First Foods program a few times together each year. So we're actually going to be opening up the doors for enrollment again in early 2022. So if you want to get on the email waitlist to be alerted when our program is reopened, you can add your name to the email waitlist for me and Don's 100 First Foods program. Just go to 100firstfoods.com. And this is one of my favorite programs to teach because it's really the only place where you can get live weekly training and teaching from two of the leading BLW experts out there. Don and I are there to answer your individual questions every week if you ever find yourself getting stuck starting solid foods safely with baby led weaning. So, again, that site is 100firstfoods.com to get signed up for me and Don's joint email list, and we'll let you know when our live 100 First Foods program is open again. Now, one of the foods you will not find on my 100 First Foods list is white rice cereal. I had the opportunity to interview a personal hero in the field of infant feeding, pediatrician Dr. Alan Green. He's the founder of the White Out Movement, and in episode 160, we tackled the topic of why white rice cereal should not be your baby's first food with Dr. Alan Green. Here's Dr. Green talking a little bit about the drawbacks of utilizing white rice cereal in infant feeding and why he's working hard to get his fellow pediatricians to stop promoting it as a first food for babies.
8: Another thing that I think could be really helpful is to think through why do we feed babies solid foods in the first place? And pretty much there are three reasons. One is to provide nutrition right then for that exciting time of life, but they're already getting the nutrition they need from breast milk or a great formula if they need to. And the white rice cereal doesn't add anything to that. The second reason is to create a great microbiome. The microbiome, the beneficial bacteria in the gut are established in those that first year or two. And it's by the food that you're feeding them. And, uh, White rice cereal is building the wrong kind of microbiome. And then thirdly is to teach the flavors kids are going to love. And you don't want to teach kids to love processed white flour.
0: All right. So we've got obesity in the metabolic situations. We've got the flavor and taste acquisition. We've got the wrong type of microbiome. What else can we add to the list of reasons why we don't want to feed? I mean, I would add cost because it costs extra money to go and buy a special food for a baby when you could just be feeding foods that the rest of the family is eating. What beyond that? I
8: mean- Well, another really good one, is arsenic. Okay. Rice is a plant that that tends to pull out whatever's in the soil, which can be a great thing if the soil is, is good and not contaminated. But much of the processed rice cereal does have arsenic in it. Both the FDA and the Academy of Pediatrics have recommended minimizing the amount of rice that kids get in the first year.
0: Dr. Green is so right. There's not any food that we want to feed to a baby every day, but especially we need to steer clear of rice foods because of that potential. For arsenic toxicity, even if you're talking organic rice cereal, it doesn't matter. The risk is still there. The next expert on the docket is Marsha Dunn Klein, the lady who literally wrote the book on pediatric feeding. Marsha is an occupational therapist. She's a feeding therapist, the founder of the Get Permission Institute. And she joined us on episode 170, which was also one of the most downloaded guest interviews of the year because she was talking about everyone's favorite topic sensory issues. That's right, Sensory 101. What motivates babies to eat with Marsha Dunn-Klein? Here's Marsha talking a little bit about what our roles are in feeding and what babies' roles are and why we need to stay in our own lane as parents when it comes to starting solid foods with our babies.
1: So as you said, it is not our grown-up job to get food in children, period. It is our job to offer food to children and have them take in as much as they want, as much as they can, in the way they can, and stop when they're ready. When they do that, when we allow them to do that, their eating is internally motivated. They're eating because they're hungry. They're eating because they enjoy it. They're eating because they're curious. They're eating because they see other people around them eating it. They're eating because it's interesting. And the first part of that that I went through quickly was they're eating because they're hungry. So one of the things we want to do when we offer children food is initially we're just we're offering food at various times during the day, but gradually that kind of blends itself into a structure of here's a meal and then here's a break and then here's a meal and then here's a break. So children have the opportunity, the privilege of being hungry at a mealtime because sometimes families get pretty excited about sort of offering food all day long, food and drink and juice and food and snacks and all day. And when kids don't have the privilege of having some hunger at a mealtime, they're not quite as motivated to try some new things. So, from a motivation perspective, we would like that motivation to be internal coming from the child. What can happen, unfortunately, is that some parents, some grown-ups, sort of emphasize the external motivators. Eat this and you can have a sticker. Eat this and then you can have your dessert. Eat this because I want you to. Finish everything on your plate because I told you to. So rewards and stickers and bribes and pressure are external motivators to eat. And what we don't want to do is teach children they're eating because the grown-up said so. They're eating because of those external motivators. We want them to eat because we offered and they ate what they could of what was offered from internal motivation. Katie, you know that there's lots of grown-ups that we had to finish everything on our plate and there was a lot of pressure for us to eat. And we sort of lost track. And so some grownups don't eat enough and some grownups eat too much and have challenges with their eating because they lost track of being internally motivated to eat when they were younger. And then it takes a while for we grownups to figure that out.
0: Thank you, Marsha. We love learning from you. I was also really excited to bring you guys an interview with noted food allergy researcher and author, Ruchi Gupta, MD, MPH. Dr. Gupta was on in episode 180, taking a lot of your questions in our food allergy FAQ episode. And one of the most commonly asked questions that I get is, Katie, if you're introducing five new foods per week to a baby, how does that work when pediatricians say you need to wait three to five days between new foods? Well, Ruchi Gupta, who's also a pediatrician, has some thoughts and here's her response on that question. So regarding the three to five day wait, I mean, this is a huge pain point because still in American Academy of Pediatric Publications coming out this year, it says wait a few days between new foods. And I think it's so important that the leaders in feeding and food allergy are out there saying, listen, there is absolutely no data to support waiting three to five days between new foods. And I was curious just to your thoughts or to hear your thoughts, because if we know the vast majority of allergic reactions to food occur within minutes and up to no more than two hours following the ingestion of food, where in the world is this three to five day wait thing coming from? Like babies cannot achieve diet diversity that they need if we're waiting five days between introducing new foods. And how can we get rid of it is my bigger question.
9: Well, if you figure that out, I'm ready to serve on that committee with you, right beside you, because we do need to get rid of it. And there is no data. You know, when we did this study with pediatricians, we searched the literature. We went to books. We were trying to find anything to show the value of waiting such a long period of time. And we couldn't find anything. I don't know if it was from industry when we started bottling foods and, and you know, it took a couple of days to finish a bottle. I don't know where it came from or who started it, but no data that we can find. So- totally with you, allergenic reactions happen really quickly. So waiting is not to prevent an allergic reaction. And and the common allergens are not like sweet potatoes and avocado and bananas and applesauce. You know, that's just not what kids tend to react to. So feel comfortable introducing new foods more frequently, at least daily, you know, if not every other day, if you're nervous, but again, no medicalization. I mean, We used to introduce foods with multiple spices and and ingredients in it to babies. Whatever you were eating, we didn't have the opportunity to introduce single food items in the past. And so yes, get back to basics. Back to basics, we're on it.
0: Thank you, Dr. Gupta. Wow, okay, so much great advice from these feeding experts last year. I wanted to say thank you to everyone who came on the podcast in 2021 and shared their time and talents with our audience. Your work and your research and your practice is so important to us as parents and other credentialed feeding professionals who listen to the podcast too. We're all working together to help parents and caregivers give their babies a safe start to solid food. So you're all honorary members of the Baby Led Dream Team, right? I'm gonna link up all of the episodes covered in this episode on the show notes, which you can find at blwpodcast.com slash 192. Thank you so much for listening and for being a part of this amazing Baby Led Weaning Community. Happy New Year.